Well, I am happy to say that my days in this preschool classroom studio uh, are numbered. Uh, and uh, we are uh, in the process of making plans on phasing back into our normal worship services. And we are looking forward, uh, even as Tom said, to being able to, to gather together. But we need just quite a bit of uh, planning involved with that because uh, it involves changes to everything from how we set up our chairs in the worship service to how we clean children's ministry classrooms. And yeah, children's ministry is a big, what do we do there? Because the kids won't necessarily uh, understand social distancing unless we have uh, a lot of bubble wrap, uh, which is one possibility that we're looking into right now, but it may not be as popular. So uh, in in coming weeks, we are going to be uh, rolling out a plan. We have a meeting this week, uh, but I just want to uh, encourage you all uh, to, I guess, temper your expectations. It's going to be a, a phased reopening. It's going to be changes. We're not going to immediately be back to uh, everything as uh, normal. There's going to be a new normal, uh, and we need to, to plan uh, all of those things. Uh, and so uh, we, we're working on that, and again, looking forward to uh, those uh, days ahead when we get to to gather together again. I've just been talking with uh, with many of you. I've heard that that we all miss singing together. Uh, that we miss being together in the same location and being able to lift our voices in uh, in worship and praise to the, the God who has created us, who has saved us, who has given us life. And uh, I long to, to do that with you all again uh, in uh, the days. So I can sound like Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming when we will regather. Uh, and I look forward to that. But this morning we are going to jump back into our study in the Gospel of John. Remember that way back when uh, we were uh, studying through, working our way through John's Gospel, and I was looking at my my notes. The last time I preached in the Gospel of John was the first weekend in March, March 1st. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up with me to John chapter 6, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 41 to 46 this morning. But as you are turning there, Yogi Berra, was a Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees for almost 20 years after World War II. And even though he was a a 15-time All-Star and a three-time MVP, and he has the most World Series championships of any Major League Baseball player in history, he has 10 World Series rings. So think about that. All all of his fingers, uh, quite an accomplishment. Uh, but he is probably best known, despite all of those things, he is best known by baseball fans and by, uh, I guess, history. It's probably his yogiisms, uh, the things that he said. He just had a, a way with words, uh, and many of his yogiisms have become part of our our modern day uh, vernacular. And so uh, some of them may be familiar uh, to you. Uh, he was the one who first said, it ain't over till it's over. Uh, he also said, you can observe a lot by watching. Uh, and n- he also said, uh, never answer an anonymous letter. Uh, he says, I-, I knew that record would stand until it was broken. And uh, he says, I think Little League is wonderful. It keeps the kids out of the house. Uh, and he also, <laughs> we made too many wrong mistakes. And uh, it's deja vu all over again. Uh, and as we come to John chapter 6, uh, that is a little bit of what 
the Apostle John wants us to, to feel. A little bit of deja vu all over again. The Apostle John, as he writes this chapter, he wants us to have that feeling that we have seen and heard these things before, that this whole scene seems familiar to us. Uh, and most of John chapter 6, as we're walking through it, consists of the bread of life discourse. Uh, and much of that is an, an interaction between Jesus and the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders at a synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, and uh, this is the day after the events in the first part of the chapter where Jesus feeds the 5,000 uh, in the late afternoon and then uh, in the evening he sends them all away and he sends his disciple across the sea and he comes to the disciples walking on the sea in the middle of the night. Uh, and the next day the crowds are coming and they are searching for Jesus and that, that's where we can pick things up in, in chapter 6 verse 25. Uh, and John writes, when they found him, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you pre perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, or that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, about this said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who... Those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And as I said, the Apostle John is wanting us to experience deja vu. He's wanting us to to think of something else even as we're reading this. Another occasion, going back to the Old Testament where there's bread, 
where there is a spiritual leader and there is a people who are grumbling and complaining. And uh, if your mind went to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, then you are seeing what John is wanting us to see. Uh, John wants us to remember how that first generation of Israelites grumbled against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. Uh, and they had uh, they had come out of Egypt. God had rescued them. And they go into the wilderness and they have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And they grumble and complain. And the Lord gives them water and he gives them manna and he gives them quail because of their grumbling or in light of their grumbling. And here in a... In Jesus' time, nearly 1,500 years later, the Israelites are still grumbling and they're still complaining against the spiritual leader that God has sent to them. Jesus is the new Moses. We looked at that several months ago. That He is the new Moses who is promised in the Old Testament, who's coming to lead a new exodus, uh, a deliverance of God's people, not from physical slavery in Egypt, but from spiritual slavery in sin. Uh, and this whole chapter is building upon this theme. And what we see is this grumbling. We saw it in verse 41, which we're going to look at today. We see Jesus commanding them uh, to stop grumbling. And then we see later in verses 60 and 61 that the disciples of Jesus are saying that that what Jesus has just taught is a hard saying and that Jesus knew that they were grumbling in their own hearts. And uh, and we are intended to see, as, as we look and, and study this passage, we, we are intended to, to see and to be reminded of the sinfulness of grumbling. Now, that grumbling is that confused sound that a, a crowd makes uh, when they are angry or in disagreement in opposition to what is being said. Uh, and grumbling indicates that something is going on within our hearts. Again, namely that we that we disagree with what is happening or with what is being said. And this is exactly what took place in Exodus chapter 16. As the Israelites grumble, it takes place again in Exodus 17. It takes place multiple times in, in Numbers. You see this pattern of grumbling among the Israelites. Uh, and this is what makes grumbling and complaining sinful. Uh, Moses pointed it out in Exodus 16 uh, when they come and they're complaining against Moses and Aaron. And Moses says, wait, you're really not complaining and grumbling against me. You're complaining and grumbling against the Lord but because you are expressing a, a dissatisfaction in the circumstances that the Lord has placed you in. And this is why in Philippians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, and we have to to see and understand that what, what the apostle Paul is or Apostle John is doing here is he's laying these breadcrumbs of, of giving us hints of what is going to take place in the future. Because what we saw in the Old Testament is that grumbling and complaining is always the first step towards rebellion. Uh, that, that grumbling and complaining, if unaddressed, leads you on a pathway to rebelling, uh, and it leads you uh, into sinful actions. We saw that play out in the first generation of the Israelites. Right? They, they grumbled and complained all along the way, and then they finally were getting ready to go and conquer the land, and it, and it culminated in an outright rebellion after the spies had gone up and, and then come back and given a bad report. We can't go up and conquer the land. The, the, the people are too big. We're like grasshoppers. Let's go back to Egypt. All out 
rebellion. We see this not only play out in the pages of Scripture, but we see this in our own lives on a regular basis. And would say this, if, if we begin to grumble and complain about our jobs or express that, that discontentment, it's probably only a matter of time uh, until that bitterness sets in within our hearts and souls and leads us to, to search for and, and transition to another job. Uh, I've seen this many times that if a, a teenager uh, would is grumbling and complaining, and this is purely hypothetical because teenagers never do that, right, parents? Uh, and so if a teenager is grumbling and complaining on a regular basis about their parents, it's only a matter of time before that teenager acts and, and leaves and departs. They eventually act upon that grumbling or also... Seeing this, and it's always heartbreaking, but if a, a spouse, if a husband or a wife is constantly grumbling or complaining about what their spouse is doing or not doing, and they're, they're a growing discontentment within that relationship, it's sometimes only a matter of time as that bitterness sets in before that marriage is on the rocks or a spouse leaves. But that's what we begin to see. And what we're seeing here in John chapter 6 is going to, to come to a, uh, a head later on in the chapter. Because again, the, those who had been following Jesus for a time, it says the disciples of Jesus stopped following him. And, and they, they go away, right? That, that begins in the grumbling and complaining with what he is saying. But also, as the Jewish leaders are grumbling and complaining about what Jesus is teaching and proclaiming, their grumbling is going to culminate in the murder of Jesus at the end of this gospel. Uh, that, that is their all-out all rebellion. That this one who is coming and, and teaching them and correcting them and, and opposing what they have been teaching, they grumble and complain about it, and then it culminates in a conspiracy to have him killed. That is what we are going to to see here. As Jesus speaks with the, the people and the Jewish leaders in the synagogue, they're going to begin to grumble against his teaching. Uh, and what's interesting is to be begin to note what they are grumbling about. Uh, and what we see in John chapter 6 are these hard sayings of Jesus. Now, this is what they're going to start to say. Uh, they're going to be murmuring about, is what, how the King James Version translated it. That Jesus is going to say some hard things. Uh, some things uh, that are misunderstood as uh, cannibalism, which we'll look at uh, in coming weeks, when Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But, uh, but Jesus is going to, to speak about some hard truths even before that. And we're going to see these things that the, the people in Jesus' own time grumbled about. And we'll see that these are the same things that, that people in our modern day grumble about. Uh, the, these are still hard truths to accept, but we need to accept them. Number one, because Jesus is teaching them in the pages of Scripture. And we need to accept them because they are true. Right? Truth, no matter how hard it is, is always better than lies and falsehood. But what were these truths that Jesus taught that led many of his own disciples to stop following and following him and led many of the Jewish leaders to oppose him? 
And again, this is going to to build over the next several weeks, but this morning as we look at verses 41 to 46, we're just going to look at two of these hard truths, these hard sayings of Jesus that, that must be accepted because they are true. And these hard sayings have led many to oppose Jesus and have led many to depart from the gospel. But, but here's what we're going to see uh, in verses 41 and 42. The first of these hard truths is that the heavenly origin of Jesus is a hard truth. And we see this in those two verses. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And as this verse begins, we see that the the Jews were grumbling, and the Greek there indicates that it was something that was going on over and over again. It wasn't just a a one-time act. They were grumbling about him, and they're specifically grumbling because of his claim uh, of having a heavenly origin. When I speak of a heavenly origin, I'm not saying that Jesus had a beginning. He is eternal. But what Jesus is saying is that he, he, he existed before his earthly life began. And that he existed in heaven and that his origin is ultimately from heaven. Uh, that he is not merely a prophet like those human prophets in the Old Testament who were uh, born of human parents and from the earth. And uh, they were then given a heavenly calling. Jesus is not claiming that. Jesus is claiming to have a heavenly origin. That he existed in heaven before he existed on earth. And the Jews... Uh, understand what he has been claiming because you can see what they're grumbling about. Like, hey, don't we know your parents? And some of them there, they're like, boy, I watched you grow up. Like, how can you say that you are from heaven? Like, I was there when you were six. I was there when you were ten. Uh, and that is the attitude here. Like, how can you claim this? We know who your parents are. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, this is loaded with irony because the Jews think that they know everything about Jesus' parentage. But they, they really don't. Uh, and that's the, the irony because they don't realize that Jesus is not born of a, a human father. Joseph is not Jesus' real dad. It's his stepfather. And later on in John's Gospel, the Jewish leaders allude to knowing something about this, something about Jesus' unusual birth, and probably just the fact that Mary was pregnant. She was with child before she and Joseph were married. That would create some scandal. And If you just jump, jump over a couple of pages to John chapter 8, you see in verse 41 that uh, the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Uh, and so they're, they're taking this jab at Jesus saying, like, hey, we know where you're really from. But again, the irony is that they don't. Uh, and the, the double irony is that uh, in verse 42 of John chapter 8 is that Jesus said to them, if you were... If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, uh, but he sent me. Uh, and then verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The, the irony is they claim to know all about Jesus' 
parents, but they really don't. And the reality is Jesus knows much more about their parents, that they are of their father, the devil. Uh, they are not of God. And and so the, loaded with irony here, but we have to see and understand that this is this is a hard truth for many people to accept, that Jesus uh, has a heavenly origin, not an earthly origin, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is equal with God the Father. That was uh, the whole point of the introduction to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses that we that we looked at. And, and so many people are willing to say good things about Jesus. But, but they stumble at this point of saying that he is God. As Benjamin Franklin was ending, uh, or nearing the end of his life, there was a, uh, a man named Ezra Stiles, who was the, the president of Yale College at that point in time, and he was curious about the religious beliefs of Benjamin Franklin, because at that point in time, Benjamin Franklin was the most senior statesman in the, in the new, uh, fledgling American nation. So in 1790, Ezra Stiles asked Benjamin Franklin if he would be willing to commit his religious beliefs to paper. Uh, and Franklin agreed, knowing that his life was, was winding down. And it's actually uh, pretty amazing that Benjamin Franklin died six weeks after he wrote down his religious beliefs. And so he, he took time and he, he summarized all that he had believed and built his life upon. And this is, this is what Franklin wrote to Ezra Stiles. He says, Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. As for Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw. But I have some doubts to his divinity. Though it is a question uh, I do not look upon with dogmatism, having never studied it and think it is needless to busy myself with it now, where I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. So Benjamin Franklin saying, you know what, I'm going to find out whether or not Jesus is God here pretty quick. Uh, and it'll be quicker just to find out at that point in time than it will be to study and try to come to a conclusion uh, right now. And uh, I'm, I'm grieved at that uh, sentiment, uh, but ultimately what we see is that, that Franklin believed that Jesus was the greatest moral teacher the world has ever known. But but the stumbling point for Benjamin Franklin was calling Jesus God. Did did Jesus have an earthly origin or a heavenly origin? Is he a good teacher or is he the son of God? That's a very important little truth. And that is the stumbling point for the Jews as they listen to Jesus here in John chapter 6. And many have good things to say about Jesus but are not willing to to say that he is the Son of God. This heavenly origin of Jesus is a hard truth to accept, but indeed it must be accepted. We are called to look to Jesus in faith, not because he's a good moral teacher, 
Right? There are a lot of good teachers, but we don't put our trust and our hope for salvation in any of them. Uh, but we are called to look to Jesus because he is the Son of God, because he is the perfect Son of Man who lived and died for sinners. And that everyone who trusts in him, not just as a good moral teacher, Everyone who trusts in him and believes in him will be saved, will be raised up on the last day, will be forgiven and reconciled with God the Father because they trust not in themselves but in the finished sacrifice of Jesus. And this is uh, this first saying of Jesus, this first hard saying, but it's one that we must come to grips with. And if you are watching this this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you haven't looked to him as the Son of God, as having that heavenly origin, if you've just said, hey, maybe Jesus has a couple of good things to say to me that I should kind of integrate into my life, that's not what we're called. We are called to submit to and believe in Jesus as the only Son of God, as our only hope in life and death for our salvation. That is the first hard truth that we see here in this passage. But there's, there's much more that the Jews are going to be grumbling about. Uh, and the second hard saying in this passage is seen in verses 43 to 46. Uh, and this passage is not so much grumbled immediately about by the Jews as it has been grumbled about by many, many people throughout church history. And this second hard saying in verses 43 to 46 would be this, that the divine initiative in salvation is a hard truth. The divine initiative in salvation is a hard truth. In verse 43, Jesus begins to respond to the Jewish grumbling. He begins by saying, do not grumble among yourselves, or I guess more literally he's saying, hey, stop grumbling. You're doing this now and it needs to stop. And, and he commands this because grumbling is never the pathway to learning. You see, grumbling sets us up to only reject rather than receive truth. That's what grumbling does. It doesn't set you up to, to learn and receive. Uh, it sets you up to reject instruction. So Jesus issues this command in verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. And then verse 44 seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Because Jesus suddenly, after issuing this command, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's very similar to what takes place uh, in between verses 36 and 37 which we looked at uh, way back in March, the last time we were in John's Gospel. So if you, if, you, if you jump back to the previous paragraph, verse 35, Jesus summarizes the, the message of this bread of life discourse, that he is the bread of life, and whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. But then, verse 36, Jesus is, says to the, the Jews, again, remember, this is a conversation. He says, hey, I'm the bread of life, but he says, but you haven't believed in me. Even though they had seen his miracles, they had, they had heard his teaching, witnessed all that he had done, he's saying, you don't believe. 
Uh, and then verse 37, again, it kind of comes out of nowhere. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the implication and the, the flow of thought is that uh, you haven't believed, but everybody uh, who, who the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. Uh, and so th- this is what Jesus did in between verses or 36 and 37 in explaining the Jewish unbelief. Jesus points to the divine plan of the triune God regarding our salvation. Jesus begins to point to salvation as from a, a heavenly, uh, eternal perspective rather than from our earthly perspective. Uh, and that, that grand plan of salvation in history is that God the Father plans to save a people and he does that through his son and ultimately saving those people is for his son. So God the Father plans salvation, God the Son accomplishes our salvation on the cross and then God the Spirit applies that salvation to those people as uh, according to the plan of the Father. And Jesus is, is making that point uh, in verse 37. That he's, his point there is that there is no, there's no breakdown in that plan between the Father and the Son. That all whom the Father give, gives to the Son, they, they make it through to the end. That the Son doesn't lose them. Uh, they don't uh, reject. They're not rejected by the Son. So God isn't saying, hey, I'm going to give this person to the Son. And the Son's like, well, I don't want him. Uh, that's not what happens. Uh, and uh, what is is key to remember is that Jesus is making this statement in verse 37 in order to explain the Jewish unbelief mentioned in verse 36. Well, all of this builds upon, uh, or verse 44 then builds upon that statement in verse 37, where uh, verse 37 stated things in a positive framework, saying that all whom the Father gives to the Son will come to him. Verse 44 presents it in a different way. It's a, it's a negative clarification of saying no one comes to the Son unless God the Father draws him. Okay, so so building upon verse 37. Uh, but ultimately, what does verse 44 mean? I would say let's look at this carefully. Okay, uh, Just looking at it statement by statement. It, it begins with uh, an evaluation and a statement about uh, inability. It says, Jesus says, no one can come to me. So and and the Greek there uh, is a word that speaks of ability or capability. So really, it's no one is capable to come to me is what it says in the Greek. So Jesus makes this blanket statement: no one's capable of coming to me, and then he he makes an exception to it, right? So here's the blanket rule, and then the exception has a condition. So unless the Father who sent Jesus draws him that that is the, the condition that is the exception no one is capable of coming to jesus except or unless the father who sent me draws him uh, and that word for draw in the greek is uh, helkuo uh, and it it means to draw an object from one place to another from one area to another and uh, there's a lot of other uses in of this word in the New Testament. I'll I'll point to some of them to help you get an understanding of what this is saying. So Acts chapter three, or Acts chapter eight, verse three 
says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged, there's our word, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, there's our word again, into the marketplace before the rulers. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And then uh, we also see it in John chapter 21, verse 6. Uh, this is after Jesus has uh, risen and now he's appearing to his disciples uh, along uh, the seashore and the disciples are in the water fishing and Jesus says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some, speaking of fish. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul, there's our word, they're not able to draw it in because of the quantity of fish. And so uh, what this verse is, is saying is that no one comes to Jesus on their own initiative, but God, it's God the Father who is drawing, who is dragging, who is bringing people to the Son. And, and there are many people who are offended. This becomes a hard saying uh, because of, of this description of a, of a heavenly uh, Father hauling away people, hauling God hauling away people, dragging the, us against our will to his son. And again, that, that is a stumbling block to many. Indeed, that seems to be a, a harsh picture if we get that in our mind of a, uh, a parent, uh, you know, picking up a screaming child who, who's kicking and flailing. And, uh, all of you who are parents of young children right now, it's a very, you know, familiar experience to you. Uh, and, and, and we may be thinking about that and saying, well, well, it's not right for God to, to save us against our will. It's not right for God to, to grab me and, and drag me along kicking and screaming in that way. But, but, but I would say this, and I would kind of challenge your thinking a little bit. I think, I think that is the logic of the child in that situation, but not the logic of the parent. Because children never like to be carried away against their will. But every parent knows that there is a time when you need you have to carry your child away, kicking and screaming, right? If my son wants to go play in a toxic swamp and has his heart set upon that, you best believe I am going to, to pick him up bodily and I am going to drag, I'm going to draw, I'm going to haul him away, whatever it may take, because that is what must happen, because that playing in that toxic swamp is a danger to him, and this is the hard truth that we need to come to grips with because it is taught here by the Lord Jesus that we are saved because God the Father first acted upon us, picking us up out of the muck and the mire of our sin. We were playing in a toxic swamp. And if we continued to to be there, it was going to lead to our death and to our judgment. And so God the Father, as a good and loving Father, draws us away from sin and death and gives us to His Son. And so there's a sense that God does draw us against our will, but he draws us against our will because what is our will? What is our nature? We love sin. We want to go and sit and play in the toxic swamp 
all day. That is our desire. And God is coming and saying as a loving parent, this is not what is best for you. Come out of there. And I'm going to, to draw you out of there. And I'm going to bring you to my son that he might give you life. And, and we must not separate the drawing of verse 44 from the giving of verse 37. That we are drawn by the Father in love and we are given by the Father to the Son in love. That we might be redeemed, rescued, reconciled, uh, and, and brought into right relationship with the triune God. That is, that is what Jesus is saying here. That is the, the description of the eternal and heavenly perspective of salvation. And that is a hard truth to accept, especially in 21st century America. And I say that it's especially hard for us right here and right now because I think the, the greatest cultural values that we have in our day and age are independence and freedom. Don't tell me what I cannot do. You cannot infringe upon my freedoms and I am able to do whatever I put my mind to. But this is not what Jesus is saying here. That is not the picture that we see in Scripture. I love the way Leon Morris puts it. He says, people like to feel independent. They think that they come or that they can come to Jesus entirely of their own volition. But Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one, no one at all can come unless the Father draws him. And that is what we see. And many uh, try to dilute uh, what Jesus is saying here. Uh, they, they point to, or they want to say that this, is, uh, this drawing of God is something called prevenient grace, which some theologians have kind of read into Scripture, saying that there is a prevenient grace of God that, that takes mankind from being sinful uh, and in rebellion against God and brings us to a neutral position. Uh, and, and makes us able to either choose to, to believe in God or choose to reject him. So it takes us from being uh, slaves of sin and brings us to being uh, f- free uh, to choose either way, which is uh, just a, a contradiction of what Scripture actually teaches, that this is not uh, what the Bible says. The Bible very clearly says that we are spiritually dead in our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. Scripture describes us as being slaves of sin, slaves of unrighteousness. That's Romans uh, chapter 6 verses 6, 17 and, and 20. Describes us as being alienated from God. Bruce read that in uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 earlier uh, during equipping hour. Uh, Romans chapter 8 speaks of us as, as those who are in the flesh being hostile towards God. Uh, that, that is the description. That is what Scripture says. And, and that is, again, why here Jesus is saying that no one is capable of coming to him unless the Father first draws. And, and Jesus just states this. And again, he's explaining this as, as to why the Jews are not believing in him at that time. They've seen all of these miracles, but they're still not believing. And so he makes this statement in verse 44, and then in verse 45, Jesus is going to explain 
that what he is saying is really just exactly what the prophets in the Old Testament proclaimed and what the prophets in the Old Testament predicted. Uh, Jesus is going to actually quote specifically from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, which says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And this is a promise in the new covenant. Uh, that uh, what we read also in Jeremiah chapter 31 for our scripture reading this morning, that that in the new covenant, God promises to give us a new heart. Uh, and again, listen to what we read in, in Jeremiah verses uh, or chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, and say, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So why is it that they don't need to teach one another anymore? Well, it's because they have been taught by God. God has put his law upon their hearts. Uh, and, and again, this is this is key to keep in mind here. This is the kind of drawing that God the Father does. It, it's not uh, pulling the, the screaming child, kicking and screaming, but, but this is the way God draws, that he draws, I love what D.A. Carson says, that he, when he compels belief, it is not by the savage constraint of a rapist, but the wonderful wooing of a lover, that God is using uh, his word in our hearts to teach us, to instruct us. And that's what Jesus says at the end of verse 45, right? They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, this is, this is a parallel thought uh, as to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The coming to Jesus, right? But God says the, the drawing is a parallel to uh, hearing and learning from God. Right? So the, the drawing of God is the teaching of God. Uh, that is what God, uh, how he draws us to himself, to his son. Uh, he draws us by teaching us and by applying that teaching to our hearts, transforming our hearts and minds. And this is really the new birth that Jesus discussed with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This is the being born uh, again from above. Uh, that you need a new heart. God is going to, to make you new. You will be taught by God and you will have new life. And then verse 46, Jesus makes a, a clarification. He says that there's only one way to hear and learn from God the Father because you haven't, no one's seen him. Uh, everyone, uh, or not that anyone has seen the Father except, again, blanket statement with an exception, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So there's a little bit of a circular argument here. This is what Jesus is saying, that, that the one who hears and learns f from God the Father is the one who comes to Jesus. Uh, and the only way to hear and learn from God the Father is to is through His Son. Uh, that, that's the, this this argument. If, uh, you have to learn uh, from God the Father through His Son, and then God the Father has to draw you to the Son. Uh, and and again, this this revelation 
of God the Father through the Son, uh, and that's the only way that we come to Jesus. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a circle here. Uh, but again, this is the only way that we come to Jesus. If God the Father first draws us to him by teaching us and giving us a new heart so that we can believe. If you, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, you'll see this loop on display, this, this cycle, this, this circle of, hey, we, uh, we learn about Jesus through, or from God the Father through Jesus and God's revealing who Jesus is to us. So, uh, Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna see Peter make a confession of faith. And it's actually very similar to what we see Peter say at the end of John 6, right? It says, do you want to leave also? And Jesus says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Uh, so Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So, so Peter makes this profession of faith, saying, I know who you are, Jesus. And then uh, this is what Jesus says to him. And, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, so Peter's making this profession of faith, and Jesus is saying, you, that, that wasn't something that was just revealed to you or you figured out on your own. Who was it that instructed Peter about who Jesus was? It was God the Father. This is, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching and talking about here in John chapter 6. That uh, no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. And the drawing of the Father is God's instruction on our hearts, revealing who his Son is. Which is exactly what we see here in John chapter 6. That so many of Jesus' followers are going to, to fall away because of these hard sayings. But the disciples, the twelve, are going to stick because they, God has taught them, God has instructed them, and opened their eyes and drawn them to Jesus so that they would behold who he is. Now what do we do with all of this? This is a hard truth to accept. But why is it an important truth? Again, one Another pastor and commentator says this, So long as a man remains and is content to remain confident of his own ability without divine help to assess experience uh, and, and the meaning of experience, uh, he cannot come to the Lord. Uh, so if if a man is saying, "Hey, I'm I'm dependent upon myself uh, and my own experience and my own ability to come to the Lord," then you cannot truly believe in God. You cannot truly believe in Christ because it's only uh, when God the Father draws us to Jesus. So if we're still depending upon ourselves in any way, then we haven't come to Jesus. We haven't uh, relied upon Him and trusted in Him savingly. Uh, and again, this is this is the message of the gospel right here. 
that we cannot save ourselves. That is a clear message of Jesus uh, to the Jews and the Jewish leaders at this point in time. He's saying that they are not uh, dependent uh, on themselves. They are dependent upon God. And no one is able to come to Jesus except that the Father would work in their hearts, in their lives. Uh, and we have to, to come to grips with our own inability. I think that's the hardest thing, again, to our 21st century American minds. Uh, we have to come to grips with our utter helplessness, with our absolute spiritual deadness, that we cannot come to Jesus on our own. Now, now we are called to come to Jesus. We are called to, to look to him in faith. But we, we, once we, that happens, we, we begin to see and realize that the only reason we were able to do that it's because of the divine initiative. It's because God first acted. He, he taught us and showed us who Jesus was and worked in our heart uh, to give us the new birth. And this is not only a, a hard truth for, for us to accept now, but this has always been a hard truth for people to accept. The, the gospel has always been a stumbling block, right? That we cannot save ourselves. Humanity always wants to believe that we can save ourselves through our own good efforts, through our own good works. Uh, but that's the opposite of the gospel. Uh, that uh, It's not that we need to act to save ourselves. We need to... We do need to act, but but not to labor for our salvation. We just simply need to look to Christ, trusting in who He is as the Son of God, being convinced of His heavenly origin... And then understanding that as we look to him in faith, that he is the one who has to save. He is the, the one who is going to work in our lives uh, to rescue us. It's not something that we do. It is a gift uh, of grace from God, not something that is earned. It's not because of our individual initiative. It's because God the Father has been at work in our hearts to draw us to his Son. And I know there's a lot here. Again, I know this is a, a hard truth and a, and a hard saying that many people struggle with uh, to, to understand and to embrace. But again, it, it's it's very clear in the pages of Scripture. And I also appreciate this this illustration by Donald Gray Barnhouse. I think it will help to provide some, some clarity. He says, we, we must imagine a battlefield over which uh, troops are advancing in order to take a ridge that is just before them. And then suddenly we're, we're, we're marching forward and the enemy begins to fire upon our position. And, and all of the soldiers fall to the ground and hold their position until the, the enemy fire is silenced. And imagine that, that of all of us soldiers who are there, that we're either uh, completely dead or completely alive and, uh, and uninjured. Now, uh, so we're, we're laying on the ground, and uh, after the firing stops for a bit, when the, there's a command given by our commanding officer that we are to get up and to advance. Uh, naturally, some of the soldiers get up, and some of the soldiers don't move. Uh, but why is it that some uh, of the, or those who get up, why does that happen? Why, why do they get up and advance forward? Well, it's because they are alive and they hear the voice of their commander, right? Those who are dead, do they get up and march forward? No, because they are dead. 
But for those who got up, was it their getting up that gave them life? No, it's actually just the opposite. They got up and responded to the command because they were already alive. And again, that's, that's the idea here, that nobody stands up and moves forward towards Jesus unless God has made them alive and given them that new birth and, and taught them and instructed them and is in the process of drawing them to the Son. Uh, and, and that is the, the picture, that is what Jesus is teaching here, that those who come to him only do so because they have been taught, they have been drawn by God the Father. And again, don't lose sight of who Jesus is speaking to here, that Jesus is, is speaking to uh, the, these hard-hearted uh, Jewish leaders and saying, you're not believing because the Father is not showing you, the Father is not teaching you, the Father is not drawing you. To me, and he is explaining both faith and unbelief. And what are we to do with all of this? Well, if if you are not yet a Christian and and you're watching this again, I'm I'm glad that you are here watching this and and hearing me out uh, on this. And and how this would apply to you is just understanding the the doctrine of God's grace uh, and that that grace uh, that salvation is a gift of grace. I mean, it's something that you have not deserved or earned. It is a gift of God, and and understand that that grace gift of salvation is your only hope. Uh, that there is no hope in yourself, not in your spiritual accomplishments, not in your uh, spiritual ability to to earn God's favor. Uh, because again, we are we're spiritually dead, and how amazing and how wonderful then to know and understand the grace of God that is given to us through Jesus Christ. And, and you can uh, look to God and cry out to Him, saying, "I can't save myself, but Lord, may You save me. May You draw me to Your Son. May You work in my heart." And if you're a Christian already, I, w- I would challenge you to 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 really look at this these hard truths. Uh, and and see their proper place in our heart and in our in our life and and as we as we look in scripture we see over and over again that we are unable to save ourselves and that salvation uh is is God working towards us not us working towards God again we're we're playing in that toxic swamp of sin and doomed to die unless God would rescue us out of that. Because we're happy. We're happy to play in the toxic swamp. But God sent his son to rescue us. And then God draws us to his son by working and teaching, showing us who his son is. And so I pray that these truths would be something that you meditate on and would be an encouragement upon your heart of understanding the depth and the breadth of our salvation in Christ, uh, and may that uh, lead us to praise and thanksgiving this week.